0: You are listening to Rethinking Hunger, a podcast coordinating the food security fight through critical conversations. Our goal is to highlight the incredible people fighting to change our food system here in New Mexico and in the greater United States. I want you to get the full spectrum of folks that are in this fight. That means people coming to the table with different approaches and varying stakes. Among others, you'll be hearing from food nonprofit leaders consumers, growers, providers, and policymakers. I'm your host, Sophia Rose. In this week's episode, I'm here with Ben Rasmussen. Ben has over a decade of experience serving to improve the health and wellness of individuals and communities, starting with direct medical care in the U.S. Navy from 2004 to 2008. Immediately following his service, he began working with the VA hospital in Minneapolis, Minnesota, primarily working with rural veterans to improve their access to healthcare. During his time in Minneapolis, Ben helped to start several successful local food businesses, including urban farms and a cidery. His love of health and farming brought him to New Mexico, where he connected with the National Center for Frontier Communities. Since 2015, he's been working as a program specialist for the center and is currently overseeing the day-to-day operations of the USDA Local Food Promotion Program. Without further ado, let's hear from Ben.
1: Yeah, so thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm really happy to have you here.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: Maybe we can start with you getting into... um, your arrival to New Mexico, what brought you to the National Center for Frontier Communities?
2: Sure. Yeah. So, um, well, I grew up in, in Minneapolis and, um, you know, over the last couple of years that I was there, I got really involved in urban agriculture and, mm-hmm. um, you know, bike farming and stuff like that. And then um, after the birth of my daughter in 2013, um, you know, we wanted to get out of the city. Um, And so a good way to do that was through woofing, which is, you know, worldwide opportunities on organic farms. And so we bounced around with that for a bit and wound up in a small community called Luna, New Mexico, which is in Catron County. And interesting parallel that we'll come back to there is that um, that's the most remote county, one of the most remote counties in the country and the most remote county in the state. And so we went from the city to there and helped a little family start a farm and stayed there for about six months. And then um when the season was over we just kinda wandered down to Silver City not wanting to go back for the Minnesota winter. And um shortly after that, um this job opened up and um it was just kind of kind of a fluke. They were advertised on a on a local medical clinics website and i had some history working in the medical field Um, and when i applied we figured out that it was they were just starting their foray into into food work and so they were looking for someone who could help bridge the gap at the time between um, you know medical care medical research and the food system and it just for me it seemed you know the timing seemed perfect it was kind of my two you know kind of my two biggest things in my background two of my passions and um that's how we started
1: so you mentioned your history in the medical field can you speak a little bit more about that
2: yeah i mean it i started fairly young i i was in the navy and um you know as an 18 year old uh i delivered babies for about wow. 3 years which was not something I consciously chose but uh you know uh, it, it worked out pretty good i ended up delivering about 300 babies over the course of my naval career and it went from the first day where i almost fainted the first time i saw a baby being born to really enjoying you know that kind of life bringing aspect of the medical field um and when i got out of when i got out of the navy i worked at the VA system in Minneapolis while I was going to college and was able to work connecting rural veterans in you know northern Minnesota and the arrowhead region to medical care and um it was there that I first really got to learn about rural issues and you know how distance between access of care and other services can really impact someone's way of life um their access to jobs industry um you know vocation you know all that sort of things and um, yeah again I just sort of fell into that but it really kind of set the groundwork for the work that I've been able to do at NCFC later on.
1: So I think that's a perfect segue into thinking more about what it means to be in a frontier community. Your work is in southwest New Mexico which is a region considered the frontier, how would you define a frontier community?
2: Well, that's a a good question. and, And one of the most common questions that we get, um, so there's, there's a number of different definitions that are used by the USDA or other government entities about what exactly is a frontier. And the definition goes all the way back to a scholar um, named Frederick Jackson Turner, um, where he, you know, initially started frontier studies, um, and declared the frontier as being closed sometime, I believe in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, so oftentimes there's a misconception about what frontier actually means in today's, you know, 2021. But the definitions that I most like to use, uh, my favorite one is probably the USDA. It's called Frontier and Remote. The acronym is FAR. Um, that definition has to do with commute times to different sized urban centers. And I think that's just the most applicable to how we live our lives today, driving, which is how we most often gain access to services. And so those go from FAR level uh, four, um, which is you know, the most remote of all communities, um, and that's, you know, an hour or more to communities that have, I think, under twenty five thousand people, um, to far level one, which is the most inclusive, and that is um, you know, thirty minutes to it's the most inclusive. And by using that definition, uh forty eight percent of the nation's land mass is actually considered to be frontier. Um, so it's 48%, mostly in the contiguous U.S. I know West Virginia has some frontier. Maine has frontier. Um, but any state west of the Mississippi definitely has um, some aspects of frontier. Mm-hmm. And so th- those are really important considerations um, today. You know, we see a lot of small communities that have been, you know, what we call kind of historical disinvestment where, you know, once thriving local industries you know grocery stores um general stores um you know other kinds of industries agriculture is a big one um you know are are booted out um, for more you know for more national international kind of brands things like walmart and whatnot Um, um, a lot of frontier communities began as part of some sort of extractive industry Silver City is a good example. It was um, you know, it was founded silver silver mining and is currently home to uh you know, some of the largest copper mines in the country and um those boom and bust cycles can be great for small communities when they're when they're happening, but you know, if they decide to move or as we've noticed, you know, especially during COVID when they shut down, it leaves a good percentage of our, you know, regional workforce completely out of work. Um and so all frontier communities share similar qualities. You know, they're all far from services. Um, they're all rich in, in, you know, natural resources or, you know, federal lands. Um, so a lot of the challenges are the same.
1: Mm-hmm. So how is the issue of food insecurity in, in particular different in rural parts of, let's say, New Mexico compared to the urban parts?
2: Well, I can't speak too much on exactly how it differs from the urban parts of New Mexico um, because I haven't spent Mm -hmm. much time working with them. But quite literally, you know, the the food pantry system is the waste management system of the larger food system. It's where all the stuff that is unsold goes. And, um, you know, the frontier communities in New Mexico are – the The last stop, literally, we're we're the last place that food goes. So we know it it comes in from wherever it gets gleaned from, from Feeding America, you know, affiliated stores and distributors and things like that to the food banks, which are, you know, the the one that serves us is located in Albuquerque. um, And they have, you know, their near statewide logistics team. But because of our small population and our distance from them, you know, we get whatever's left on the truck on their way back up. Um, And this is by no means a knock on Roadrunner. They do, I think, a pretty good job of what they do. But that's just kind of the reality of, you know, living in such a remote place. You know, when you're dealing with numbers, you know, we have, you know, when we typically work within Southwest New Mexico, it's a region of, you know, Catron Grant, Hidalgo and Luna counties is how we've often defined it. that land mass is bigger than I think uh, Connecticut and New Jersey combined um, and has i think sixty three thousand people um so it's incredibly remote there's a lot of a lot of empty land so it's easy to you know push off the bad stuff or to you know forget about you know the needs of of the food insecure in this region so that that's what we deal with we often deal with food coming down that's you know, not an optimal condition. We get what seems like less of a choice. You know, in terms of the, the food pantry foods that come through, um, and you know, so it's a struggle all the way around. The name of the game for us is quite often just logistics. It's, it's how do we get good food here, not too expensively and in a timely manner. And mm-hmm. that's you know, with NCFC's work with the Southwest New Mexico Food Hub, that's you know, been on both the Know, the agricultural and market side of you know the food system and the, the emergency and supplemental side. That's really what we've been working on.
1: Yeah. Do you want to speak a little bit more about the food hub and what you're trying to do with that project?
2: Yeah. So like I mentioned earlier, uh when when I first started working at NCFC, we um, you know, they were just kind of doing their first forays into food work. And right off the bat, um my first two projects were a food hub feasibility study and um, a health impact assessment which looked at the state of the food pantry system in southwest new mexico and that was a really in-depth look at you know the quality and quantity of foods coming out of the food pantries talking with the people that were impacted by you know uh, who used the food pantry system and looking at some potential policy changes around that And then the feasibility study for the food hub, we wanted to look at, um, you know, the the food, the food hub or the the food system, the growers in the region, um, how being remote was affecting them, how different, you know, new food safety rules coming down the pipeline was affecting them. And if there was any potential intervention that would help, you know, increase, uh, you know, their bottom line, increase the amount of local foods in the region. And so when we finished both of those studies, um, you know, we looked at all the recommendations that we came up with, and from those we made, you know, we designed the food hub as it is now. And there's food hubs all across the country, but ours is pretty unique in that, um, well, one, it's in a frontier community, which as far as we know is unique, um, and that we call it a dual-purpose food hub because it serves the food pantry system, On the local food economic side. Um, So really what we've been doing with that is we work with a few dozen growers, mostly in in our corner of the state. We have um, logistics that we run. We market, aggregate, and distribute their food. Um, School districts, hospitals, restaurants, grocery stores. Um, We're now starting um, a CSA program. Um, So we've been able to generate you know, almost a quarter of a million dollars in sales for local growers over the past three years. And we consider those all, you know, new markets in terms of, um, you know, markets that these growers weren't selling to before. We saved growers from driving, uh, I think, close to 100,000 miles. Um, you know, and I've helped crop coordination and planning. So we have a lot more food available now than when we first started. And then on the flip side, we're working with food pantries. So we've done a number of, you know, capacity building trainings. Um, and now, especially since COVID started, we've been really getting into purchasing bulk, healthy foods for the food pantries. Um, so we've, I think we've done just over 30,000 pounds of food. Um, and these are all healthy Food items, including a whole bunch of local produce, um, that we distribute mostly free of charge to food pantries. If pantries can afford it, um, they match us dollars, which helps you know us kind of subsidize the smaller pantries. Um, but we really see the food hub as a you know the, the nexus of the food system down here. So it's all the needs that the food system has. You know we're small enough where we're able to be really responsive to what the needs are. Change operations as necessary, but really provide a lot of um, a lot of benefit for the folks involved.
1: Looking towards the future, do you see this model of the food hub working in other places too?
2: Yeah, that's something we think about a lot. I think the key, um, you know, that we really pride ourselves on is um, in the in the planning and design process is including community stakeholders as much as possible and these aren't just you know other organizations working on this stuff but it's really getting out there and you know doing doing a lot of listening before coming to any conclusions Um, and I think a food hub in a lot of frontier communities could be beneficial and we've actually developed a a food hub toolkit um, for other frontier communities to use Um, we're working over the next probably 18 months on creating a wider dissemination plan um, that documents our you know kind of unique successes that we've had you know running a food hub down here and hopefully you know helping some other you know remote communities uh, go through the planning and design process of something similar um, that could benefit them Um, but yeah we definitely see definitely see food hubs as, you know, um, an important part of a frontier food system.
1: Yeah, it seems like such an important part of the ecosystem. On your website, I noticed your mission is framed around this commitment to fostering a thriving food system. And I'm curious why use the language of thriving? Why is that important?
2: Uh, someone had thrown out the word, and this was two years ago now, someone had thrown out the word viable. And, uh, you know, I, I think when I hear that word, especially because of my past, I think of, uh, you know, a baby who's just barely being kept alive. <laughs> and uh, it's not, for me, it's not a pretty image. Um, so I, yeah. I think holding the mission statement, you know, kind of is like your your top goal. So you can, you know, make sure everything flows to that greatest, greatest goal. Um, when, th- I mean, thriving is, is a good word. I, I think it's maybe in danger of being overused. I think so many, you know, people use that word and probably for a good reason. Um it seems like a bright, happy word. It seems like people are getting what they need when I think about that word. Um it seems like there's a lot of action. You know, it seems like busy and bustling. Um, there's this huge notion that we get asked about a lot is, you know, even the word frontier has all these archaic connotations um, about pioneers and covered wagons and colonialization, colonization and all that kind of stuff. And really, you know, what, when we think about frontier, we just mean places that are far off the beaten path that are, you know, historically underserved and disinvested in. And, you know, a lot of that is due to, you know, perhaps unfavorable policies. It's due to not having a strong enough voice at at state and federal decision-making tables. Um, So, you know, thriving is is making sure that frontier communities are included in that decision-making process. One of our founding board members, Carol Miller, she has this great quote Um, she is you know one of the greatest thinkers on these kind of issues that i've ever came across but she talks about when an organism is dying the the first thing to lose blood is often the limbs Um, and so she she connects that to frontier communities that when you disinvest in you know the rural parts of the country it's not a sign of a healthy country as a whole you know, if you can go from, you know, a place of, you know, great affluence and drive an hour and, and be in a place that is, you know, much poorer and there's not as much going on, that's not a sign of a of a healthy whole. That's a sign that there's a blockage somewhere and something that needs to be, you know, listened to and given attention to. Um, and, you know, from our experience, you know, living in the frontier is great. Um the uh, amount of connection out here is is astounding the amount of people that are super dedicated to you know seeing their community bustle and and connect is is amazing and so we want to we'll kind of flip the narrative of you know frontier from being this heavy lonely place to being this you know really place in America where you can find you know some really genuine connections and really unique cultures And so, you know, when I think of thriving, all those things kind of come up.
1: I was really interested to learn about the seed library effort taking place down there. How did you become involved in that?
2: Yeah, well, again, you know, part of the food hub is, you know, we're really wanting to, you know, respond to what the community needs are and there's been a, some iteration of a seed library for, for years out here. Um, And it's always been volunteer run. And it seemed to us being involved with it personally, being interested in seeds that, you know, the issue with it was just, it lacks some sort of backbone support, some sort of like managerial consistency. And so we were able to, um, you know, utilize a permaculture grant that we received, um, utilize part of it to relaunch the seed library, um, to, uh, you know, to do a seed launch event, to get, you know, our supplies built up, to get, um, you know, a storage refrigerator and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, at this point, it, it's still run by volunteers. Um, we're able to step in and provide resources when necessary. We're going to be doing Um, a bunch of classes later this spring on, you know, some really interesting topics, Um, things like intuitive seed propagation, um, you know, seed saving 101, um, you know, wild tending um, seed, seeds and crops and land races and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I, I think it's, just the seed itself i think seeds bring a lot of people people are interested in seeds seeds themselves have a lot of energy in them um so we found that you know just since having a regular booth at the farmer's market um you know tons of people have come out of the woodwork and are um, contributing seeds that they've saved or interested in learning about how to do it and kind of one of our big goals with that is to you know really just foster you know um a community around gardening and and food sovereignty and so far the interest has been pretty amazing especially for you know as as small a town as we are um so you know we're just we're we're keeping our ear out and you know making sure we're listening to what people are interested in and we're just kind of able to step in and provide those resources and an organization to make those things happen
1: yeah, you mentioned the imp- the importance of food sovereignty. And I'm wondering, can you speak a little bit more about why uh, self-reliance and self-sufficiency is important in these places?
2: Well, I think, you know, our, our food system is incredibly interconnected. It's really like one of the wonders of the modern world, I think. You know, how timely everything is, how how many steps food often has to go through to get to the grocery store, to get to your table, to the restaurant. Um, so, you know, and, and, and that's not a bad thing. I think interdependence is, you know, it's what nature does. And I think interdependence is a good thing. Um, when you have, you know, a community, you know, that is maybe somewhat more off the beaten path, Um, you know, there's a lot of these, you know, experiments, I guess, or, you know, results of isolation, um, you know, can be seen really clearly. For example, you know, when, you know, when there's a bad storm, we only have a few roads that come into town. Um, the grocery store shelves get emptied pretty quickly. And, um you know, it's startling to see that, you know, you don't often think that's going to happen. Um, so when you have when you have a community that is taking more than it's producing, which is the case with, I'd say, most of the country, um, where we're importing most of our food, um, I think there's an opportunity for us to step up and, you know, get into the production of food. I think it, a lot of benefits come with it you know we're eating healthier food we're talking to each other more we're getting outside we're getting dirty Um, all those kind of things are you know good for individuals and what's good for individuals is usually good for the community Um, I think one of the ideas behind the seed library is that um, you know by teaching gardeners here to you know select for the best possible varieties you know as we go through like things right now where there's a lot of drought or you know if there's The climate keeps shifting we'll maybe eventually have seeds that are really well adapted for the region um, that would do better down here than seeds we buy from maine or you know from seattle or something like that um yeah so yeah but you know being being involved i think is maybe more so more important than complete independence it's just being a player in in the interdependent food system
1: yeah the idea of having seeds evolve to be much better regionally and creating these regional food systems is really fascinating to me how do you think the big agribusiness corporations like monsanto now Bayer feels about these practices of seed saving and seed libraries happening on local regional levels
2: well i don't think they feel anything (laughs)
1: Um, good, good point. Good point. I don't think they have
2: feelings, but um, I, I mean, I, I know what you're getting at. I mean, on on such a small scale, you know, I, I don't think it's perceived as a threat. I think, um, you know, like like I said, I, th- I think the more people involved, and, and we found that, you know, once people really hear about issues surrounding seeds and food, I mean, it's, it's. I don't want to say it's a no-brainer, but um most people understand why there needs to be things like seed libraries so we talk about this a lot um, you know at at the state level you know we talk about how there's a number of different food hubs around and sometimes what food hubs do can seem redundant to what other food hubs do to what other companies do but having a bit of redundancy is good you know having a backup plan is good having energy reserves and Seed reserves and excess food is good because you just never know what's going to happen. You you know, I mean, think about if we would have had, you know, a a toilet paper reserve um, about a year ago, people wouldn't have been freaking out as much. Um, You know, so if we can have extra seeds and, you know, with the food hub, having extra food around and encourage people to really participate in the food system, you know, that, you know, you know they they can contribute to it by you know growing food um, feeding the food banks feeding themselves providing seeds you know i i think that we're going to be a lot stronger and small communities I, I think what i was trying to say before is that um observing observing these changes is um a lot easier in small communities um moving the needle is a lot easier to do in small communities because by default, everybody interacts with each other anyways. I remember reading um, a study years ago about um, social circles. And uh, people that live in rural communities, social circles are much, much larger than those that live in urban communities. And that's just because you have to interact with more and different kinds of people on a daily basis to, you know, just to live your life. And so I think that's one of the really great benefits of small towns is that, you know, there's people that we interact with on a, on a deep, consistent basis out here that, you know, I feel like in a in a larger city, we would be siloed a little too easily. And, you know, that sort of resiliency factor, um, if we can continue to weave that into the food system, um, we're gonna be better off. You know, our kids are gonna be healthier. We're gonna have more food. Uh, farmers can make more money. Um, that's that's what we're aiming for
1: yeah I think what you pointed out about the social togetherness is so key like as an added element to how this could really work and I was also thinking about how um, when you were talking about you know getting folks interested in growing food I think a lot of people are kind of intimidated by the prospect of growing food because it seems like a big deal what would you say to someone who is starting their garden for the first time or growing food for the first time, you know, to get involved?
2: Well, um a couple things. I mean, there's there's resources available, um, you know. If if you're down here, you can hit us up. We'll help you out. We're going to be doing some classes on raised bed 101. Um and just kind of getting started and even though in the desert it doesn't seem like it the best advice i ever got about growing food is that you're just assisting a natural process um food you know seeds plants they really want to grow and so if you can maybe slow down and and learn how to how to intuit what they need um, and spend time in the garden um, you know you're going to figure it out Um, people have been doing it forever and um Yeah, but oftentimes in the desert, it can be a bit tricky, so. um, I say go for it.
1: Awesome. Is there anything else that you feel like you want to touch on that we didn't get to?
2: I think. Well, um, if you're around New Mexico, look for the Southwest New Mexico food hub where. you know, we're sending up north. We get a lot of our stuff in Albuquerque and Santa Fe, especially at the amazing La Montanita co op stores. Um
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So you sell to those to the co op. Co-op,
2: co op, yeah, the co ops are great. Um, you know, huge shout out to the folks at La Montanita. Um, you know, they're really doing things in a big way across the state. We have just um been so blessed by our partnership with them. Um they you know, they have some pretty cool logistic lines, they're able to back you know, they make it possible right now for us to bring our food up to that part of the state. Um I know a lot of people that work there, you know, they're incredibly dedicated. Um and that's one of the things um, you know, I don't know if you've gotten this sense, but we're we're involved with um, a number of, you know, national uh coalitions on agriculture and and policy and things like that. And New Mexico really is um, incredibly forward-thinking and progressive in terms of food system interventions. Um, And you might not think it when you think about New Mexico, but we have just an amazing, amazing thing going on and a lot of momentum heading in a direction that's going to be good for, you know, for everybody. It's going to be good for the people growing food people buying food, people on food stamps, people at food pantries, um, and then all the other supportive businesses around there. So, you know, and then just you know, recognize places like La Matanita, is, you know, a major player in that. So support them whenever you can too.
0: From the New Mexico Out of School Time Network, this has been Rethinking Hunger. You can keep up with Ben and the work they're doing at the National Center for Frontier Communities on their website at frontierus.org. The music for this podcast was made by Adam DeGraff. You can follow him on his website at adamviolin.com. If you liked this episode and want to subscribe to our podcast, or if you want to learn more about the issue of food insecurity, visit our website at nmost.org. That's n-m-o-s-t.org.